This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Gary Martin, the founder and president of Boston multi-line showroom, The Martin Group. Gary is a veteran of the industry and the longest-lasting tenant of the Boston Design Center. Over the course of three decades, he's brought dozens of the trade's finest makers and brands to New England. He's seen the industry at its highs and lows and has a keen sense of where things are headed. I spoke with Gary about how he bounced back from losing his biggest fabric collection, the challenges of bringing the trade online, and why showrooms everywhere are leaving design centers. This podcast is brought to you by The Bruno Effect, a new online marketplace giving interior designers access to the world's finest furniture and collectibles. Launching later this fall with thousands of pieces from vetted dealers across the globe, the marketplace is the destination for high-end antique, vintage, and contemporary design. What makes The Bruno Effect so distinctive? They're on a mission to liberate the design community. As a family-run business, they put relationships first, fostering transparency and open communication. Meaning once you've found your perfect piece, you can connect directly with the dealer to discuss the item and purchase on your own terms. Sign up now at thebrunoeffect.com to discover a new way of sourcing. This podcast is also brought to you by luxury home retailer Ben Solmani. Renowned for his iconic rugs, Ben Solmani brings the perfect showroom experience to your fingertips via bensolmani.com. The site offers an impressive shopping experience of exquisite, bespoke quality, hand-woven rugs, furniture, textiles, and decor of unparalleled craftsmanship. Courtesy is given to the trade with a designated site and preferred designer pricing. Visit bensolmani.com to learn more. Hi folks, Dennis Scully here. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. We're conducting our first ever listener survey, and I'd love to hear what you think about the podcast. Your feedback will help us improve the show, and even better, we're giving away a subscription to Business of Home's Insider Program to one lucky respondent. Head on over to businessofhome.com slash podsurvey. That's businessofhome.com slash p-o-d-s-u-r-v-e-y I promise it'll only take a minute thanks so much I really appreciate it okay let's get on with the show hilariously Gary there is so little about you on the internet that my crack research assistant, also known as the lovely Mrs. Scully, provided well, I me. Love. Uh, well, and you're you're sweet to say, and she was so excited to get to work on this. The only thing that she could share with us were some YouTube videos of the the Rochester Crusaders. Do I have that uh-huh. right? So, so tell me, tell me about those days. So I came from Rochester, New York, and um, my father was a sheet metal worker and you know we were solidly middle class but the whole family marched in drum corps my mother my father and all my brothers and uh in 1972 i was in the rochester crusaders 
and we won the world championship. And um, the reason that's significant is because like a week later, the army came to me and said, you're 17, you're a world champion in drum corps. You know how to march and all that. If you enlist, we'll take you out of the lottery and we promise we'll put you in the presidential honor guard in Washington, D.C. So I went into the army. I was in the presidential honor guard for three years. I get out of the service. Now I have the GI Bill. By now I'd met my future wife. And uh, I went out to California and I went to a junior college there called Mount San Antonio. So then I was going to go to Berkeley from there. And Marion, my wife, said to me, if we go to Berkeley, it's cold in the winter, it's damp, you're going to need coats, and we're going to need the heat, and we're going to be really poor. So why don't we go to Hawaii, and we'll go to the University of Hawaii, and we can live in shorts and T-shirts and sandals. Well, that made a lot of sense to me. (laughs) That sounded good to you. Yeah, so I applied, and I got in, and then... uh, after that, I wanted to go to graduate school. I got accepted at a bunch of schools, and two of them were Boston University and Emerson College. Marion liked the idea of going to Boston, so did I. Our family was from, you know, the East Coast. So we got married in Rochester. We took a train to Boston. We had two suitcases and $300. And um, I started going to school. I got all the way through until my last last summer. But it was summertime, and we had been poor so long that I took a job. It was selling industrial supplies. I really was doing great, and we were making really good money. And I said to Marianne, um, I'll go back, but I don't want to go back right now. Let's put some money aside, and then I'll go back. So a long story short, I got a bunch of different offers, and one of them was Scalamandre Fabric Company. So... Scalamandri was offering me more money than the other jobs did. I knew (laughs) nothing about it, uh, but I took the job. Scalamandri was a wonderful company to work for back then. I loved my boss. His name was Ward Bitter. He was a great guy. Um, You know, the Bitters owned it. Yes, back in the the glory days. Yeah, they had their factory in Long Island City, and they made their own fabrics, and they made their own trims. And so it was like, I called it Scalamandra University, boy. I mean, they really taught you. So I really learned a ton while I was there. What a remarkable training, and that and that's so fabulous. I want to come back to the, the early days, but I, I want to jump into the present moment because I, I want to sort of get a, a sense of the market in Boston and what's happening at the Boston Design Center. And I know for you, personally with the business, you are in the process of moving for the second time in just the last five or six Six years, years. if I recall. Yeah. So there's sort of a lot of movement going on. Tell me what's going on, what, why you're moving and and sort of. So six years ago, Jamestown Properties out of Atlanta uh, bought the design center. They paid a, a huge amount of money and they bought it. And I was on the first floor Uh, one of my showrooms. At that time, I had three showrooms. And the first floor made a real big difference. And people Mm. would think, why would it? Well, designers would come into the showroom and they would be expected to go through the whole building, but they get finding so many things in my showroom. It took so much time that they would never get anywhere else. And so it was a real advantage. So when Jamestown bought the building, they had an idea to make 
the first floor retail, and then the floors above that wholesale. So they said to me, Gary, um, you got to move. And uh, I said, I don't want to move. I got seven years left on my lease. And, you know, I don't want to paint them out to be bad guys because they ended up being pretty good lawyers. But they basically said to me, you can fight us, but you're not going to win. You know, you don't have deep enough pockets, is what they really said. This is going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, after I calmed down a week or two later, uh, they came back to me and said, uh, all right, now that you've had time to think about it, what can we do for you to make this palatable? And I said, I'd like to have one big showroom instead of three little ones. You know, when you have multiple showrooms, you have to have multiple people in each showroom and more printers and more, you know, all the whole everything. So having it all in one makes it a lot less expensive. So we did move into that one on the fifth floor, uh, 9,000 square feet. And that was six years ago. So then I brought my sister-in-law back, Kelly. We were sitting on our porch one day having a glass of wine, and I said, Kel, I've been doing this a long time. I'm getting old. I've had cancer twice. You know, I'd like to start to step back, Kel. So I'd like you to take it over, and I'll get out of your way. So um, I did. So, you know, I I help her, but she runs it five times better than I ever did. (laughs) She really does. Okay, so you really are stepping away. Yeah, we have four years left on our lease, and we shall see at the end of four years if my daughter wants to carry on, uh, then I'll help her, and we'll work on that together, or I'll sell it, or I'll just close it. Well, so you mentioned the fact that you've got four more years left on your lease, yeah, and part of this move for for you and and for others in, in the building is about consolidating onto a handful of floors, sort of all of the, right, all of the interior design-related businesses. And then there are these other tenants in biotech and and other fields that are taking up a lot of the space, right? Correct. So when we moved to the design center, there was 91 showrooms in the design center. When this move is complete, there'll be 33 of us left. One of the reasons we are having the best year in our history is because there's so so many less competitors. And, you know, my number one competitor was David Webster. And so when David closed, that really helped too. So those are real factors. And COVID-19 has been a really big factor too. And you would think, why? Well, people sat home, they couldn't go on vacation, they couldn't go to the movies, they couldn't go out to dinner. And they're, all the uh, cash that they would have spent on all that piled up, And they looked around their houses and said, you know what, maybe we should fix them up. And that's what's happened. So it's a, a, you know, a bunch of different factors, but um, less competition, the COVID factor, um, we have great lines and, uh, and it's really, really going very well right now. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and I want to get into that a little bit because you mentioned years ago, 91 showrooms, now 33. Yes less competition for you, but also it speaks to this sort of remarkable consolidation in the industry, right? So you and I have spoken in the past. You mentioned early on in your career, you started at Scala Madre. So Scala Madre used to be one of the anchor 
tenants for design centers, along with Brunswick and Fee, right? Yeah, Br- Brunswick was the anchor. Yeah. Um, Brunswick was like the Sears Robux in a mall or a JCPenney. So Brunswick would be given these unbelievable deals to move in because they knew everybody would follow them. Well, nowadays, those two companies are Kravit and Count and Tout. So wherever Kravit goes, usually Count goes with them, and that's where everybody's going to go. And I, I see a big shift going on in the industry going forward away from design centers, more like what's happened in Florida. Because in Florida, it's worked beautifully for everybody. They were paying, you know, I don't know exact facts, but I do know from my friends down there, they <laughs> were paying over $60 a square foot to be in the uh, Fort Lauderdale Design Center. And they moved under the freeway across the street into a design district, mm. and they all were paying $15 a foot. And boy, oh boy. That is a huge difference in in your world. And so when Kravitz saw everybody do this and they were successful at it, Kravitz did it. So they moved there too. And now they've done it in other places. Um, Not a lot, but I think you're seeing a trend. I think that's what's going to happen in most places in the country. So what you think is going to happen is that more and more showrooms are going to leave design centers, go onto the street in some kind of a design district in an effort to lower the cost per square foot, the rental costs. Yes. The thing is, Dennis, we're wholesalers. And 34 years of owning the showroom, our margins have only changed 5% in 34 years. <laughs> But yet the rent, when I started at the design center, was $12 a foot. And now we're over 50, you know, combined or at 50. So the costs have exploded and your margin doesn't. And so it's getting to the point where it's killing all the little independents. They can't handle it. And if it was just the independents that were crying, then the Kravitz wouldn't be moving and other people. But they're all realizing that these costs are too high mm. and that we need lower costs if we're going to be wholesalers and be profitable. So for the Boston Design Center, again, you've got four more years. Are you imagining that you're going to go out on the street or that, you're, that your daughter, Whitney, as you mentioned, is looking in, in that direction? And, and is, there, is there a place where you could be successful? Is there a place where other showrooms are already congregating? So there's a place in the city where two other showrooms have gone to. I don't believe that that's going to be successful. It's still expensive. It's still you're in the middle of no parking and difficult being in the city. I think you're going to see a group of us eventually go out to the first belt, the uh, 128.95 belt. And I think you'll see the showroom's opening up somewhere in Woburn or one of those towns. And I think we'll be able to get in there for $20, $22 a square foot, something like that, and be a lot more in control. And that'll make a, a big, big difference. The designers, most of them do not live in the city. Most of them live in the suburbs. So it does. It would be better for them. They'd have free parking. The design center, they, they pay $20, $30 a day to park. 
And you have to deal with all the rest of what comes with getting into Boston. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and even, I mean, even getting to that design center where enormous cruise ships pull in, where, I mean, that that, that place has a lot going on. Uh, And so good luck even getting into the parking lot, never mind all of the other challenges. Yeah. Michael Phillips, I mean, from from Jamestown, who, who we've spoken to, I mean, he... He did seem as if he really cared about the design industry and he did seem to want to sort of make all of this work. But I get the sense that sort of over over time, it just wasn't feasible for them to make the kind of return that they needed to to make. Right. I think, Dennis, it goes right back to what we're talking about, about the consolidation. You know, he needed to fill up a whole building. Yeah. Full of interior design showrooms. Right. And he learned after five or six years. That was never going to happen. There was blanks everywhere. And I don't think that was good for them. And and also, I, I think the city was hard to deal with for them. Mm-hmm. I don't know that for a fact, but I think so. You know, I, I don't know how they made out on the sale. I didn't hear it's not public knowledge, uh, but Real Beal bought it. And they're a really famous real estate firm in Boston and have been for a hundred some years. So... They'll have a lot easier time with the city. They'll have an easier time with the city. And your your yeah. sense, if I understand you correctly, is that the new owners are going to endeavor to release themselves from the obligation for it to remain a design center, right? Right. There, there's um, It's a 99-year lease. And in the lease, there's um, a section that says that a part of the uh, that building has to be design center. And I think that Beale is going to try to get released from that. And if they can, then that whole thing will probably become biomatter, whatever. But I think that the showrooms will be moving eventually and going to some district other than where it is Hmm. because of cost. It's just too expensive. So who's moved already? You mentioned a couple of showrooms moved into an area that you don't think is perhaps the, the spot. Atlantis moved. Okay. And so did Charles Spada. Okay. And one tile showroom. And uh, they just moved because they thought it was, you know, with the breakup, it was a good time to jump out. Right. And it was hard for them to make it at these costs. So, Well, I mean, yeah, the cost structure is an enormous challenge. And we've been we've been endeavoring to have conversations with multi-line showroom operators to sort of better understand the dynamics today. And so I'm curious what the other challenges have have been for you and and sort of how you're you're thinking about them today i mean for example and and i want you to help me understand the boston market a little bit better but in many markets giant retailers like the rhs of the world and and others have started to eat away at a lot of the traditionally designer driven business is that happening in a meaningful way in your market there's no doubt it's happening everywhere it's also uh, much truer today than it's ever been that designers are forced by their clients to shop at RH or to uh, shop at other places. That, hmm. So they're doing more of that because when they get to secondary rooms, the the client will say, I'm not going to wait all that time. And I we don't need to do that for that room, just for the the public rooms where we spend the money for the design center kind of thing. Um, so I think that that's had an effect. There's no doubt about it. I also think a, a big effect on independence has been uh, the movement of nationals 
when they were big enough to open up their own showrooms and get out of independent showrooms. For instance, I had Gout and Tau for 26 years. Yes. Without them, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> My career wouldn't have still lasted. Right. And um, we took them from 230000 to right around $4 million. And Key came to me, and Key and I are still really close friends today. Key Hall, who runs Count and Tout, and said, you know, this is really hard for me, Gary, because of our friendship, but business-wise, it makes sense for us to open our own showroom. That was quite a hit. That was pretty devastating blow. It'll take your breath away, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> losing, losing a $4 million yeah, business. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that happened to us. And then uh, just recently, it happened again with Pierre Frey. And Pierre Frey left us to open their own showroom in Boston, too. But Phillips Jeffries left David Webster to open their own. Uh, Romo left wherever they were to open their own. So it's been a series of that. And that's why I don't think there's going to be a ton of little independents left in the business. I think there'll be a couple big ones like us, like uh, Studio 534, Josh in Boston. Right. But, you know, I think all these little ones that there were along the way, there's not enough big lines left out there to sustain a lot of little showrooms. We're taking a quick break to remind listeners to visit thebrunoeffect.com, a new online marketplace launching later this fall, where interior designers can source high-end furniture and collectibles on their own terms. A treasure trove of antique, vintage, and contemporary design, the platform showcases thousands of the finest pieces from vetted dealers across the globe. More than just a marketplace, the Bruno Effect is a hub of inspiration, with curated collections from world-renowned designers and the latest stories from the world of design. Sign up now at thebrunoeffect.com to start your new sourcing journey. Help me understand better, Gary, because I, and, and I'm so glad that you brought up Pierre Frey and, and Cowton and Tout, because often when we talk to the people that run multi-line showrooms, the subject comes up about how do you start to anticipate that one of your big lines might be getting ready to leave? How do you separate all of the emotion and the, and the personal side of feeling as if you've you've incubated and and developed this business over the years, as you said, with with Cowden and Tout taking them from two hundred and thirty thousand to to four million dollars. How could you how could you not feel that you were intimately involved in their success, and and how could you not be devastated when they come to tell you that they leave? How do you manage that? How do you think about that? There's no way to insulate yourself from it. It's devastating. I felt like I lost part of my family. I understood it from a business point of view. I saw it coming for a long, long time. Counton had made those moves in lots of places. And because of my relationship with Key, uh, and because we did a great job, she left me alone as long as she could. But she has a boss too. His name's David Green, and he's in England. And (laughs) And, uh, you know, and she and David and the board thought that that was the best things for them. I was very, very lucky. You know, you can't be an entrepreneur for as long as I have been and not had a lot of luck fall into your lap. 
Now, it falls into your lap because you've done the right things and you've treated people the right way and your reputation is good, but you still have to be lucky because timing has to be right. Well, right then, after this happened, Tebow came knocking at the door. And I took Tebow on, and I never had a line in my life grow as fast as Tebow has. It's unbelievable, but we're now, the whole territory with Tebow is right back to where Counton was. Really? And we did that in five, six years. Tebow's a jargonaut. It's unbelievable. And um, I believe it is because it's the most American-looking fabric line, I think, in the country. I think Americans understand it. You know, a lot of times with Pierre Frey, he would do designs that were really beautiful, but very hard to understand what you'd ever do with them. So you'd end up trying to explain people what the with Tebow, there's no explaining. Well, I always feel that Tebow was just waiting to sort of burst onto the scene. They yes. weren't right. They weren't in the right place. They weren't, they didn't have the right showroom partners in many markets. I just feel like I, I was always wondering why isn't this a bigger, more known and successful line? But now it sounds like in your situation, they are in the right place and they have grown. So they basically were owned and run by uh, Bob and Stacy um, Senior. Senior. Yeah. Yeah. And they did a hell of a job. And they were the ones that kind of got them to the point where a venture capital group came in and bought them. And that group was smart enough to keep Bob and Stacy on. And then that lasted another five years. So there was a lot of money being put in and tons of product coming out. And, you know, with most lines, uh, they'll come out with a new collection. We have 40 things in it. 10 of them will be great. The other 30s, you don't know, they'll hit and miss. With Tebow, almost all of it's great all the time. It's amazing. So they they do an amazing job, and uh, it's been great working with them. And they're going to, you know, they're going to stay with me to the end of my lease, but they're going to go on their own eventually, too. There's no doubt. They're going to outgrow you as well. You're already preparing yourself emotionally for that. Yeah, well, not only that, but we kind of made that deal. You did. Yeah, with the new uh, with the new showroom I'm building right now, right. I said to them, how much space do you need? What do you want? What's going to make you happy? And I gave them that. And in return, they said, well, you know, we'll be with you going forward. There's no more talk about leaving you. So. <laughs> well, so you can put your mind at ease about that. I want to circle back, though, because you mentioned about so many of these more corporate brands go off on their own, less and less sort of independent, multi-line showrooms. What do you think that means for for designers? What do you think the impact of that is? So if you lose all the independent showrooms, you uh, lose all the flavor, I think, of the design center. The big companies, they do what they do well, but they only do that. Hmm. So if Counten's Vanilla then Tebow's chocolate, then Romo, you know what I mean? Well, in multi-line showrooms where you have 20, 30 lines, you experiment with lines that you find along the way or that come to you that are really beautiful and really cutting edge and really different, but don't have a line of business behind them. So uh, Holly Hunt, who does take some other lines on, she's not going to take some little line on that doesn't, have a book of business behind it. 
they can't afford to grow little lines. Sure. Where independent showrooms do a lot of that. In our showroom, we have a section where we put up a neon sign that's called the incubator. (laughs) And that's all the little lines that we've taken on that we're trying to grow. And by putting that sign up, it let the designers know where all the fresh new stuff was. So, you know, just clever marketing ideas. But if you lose your independent showrooms, then all these little lines that are trying to grow, there'll be nowhere for them to go because nobody will take them. You need the independence to do that. So that that's where designers get inspiration is from the, the new companies, the new lines, doing new avant-garde things. So with that in mind, what do the, as you mentioned, Josh, at, at Studio 534 and, and, and yourself, I mean, what, what do the multi-line showrooms need to do to ensure their viability going forward? You have to be adaptable. You have to be nimble on your feet. And by the way, and anybody who sees my picture knows I'm not nimble on my feet. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, in mentally business, you are. Mentally. Yeah, in business, we have been. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of shots, like the count and tout shot, that would put most showrooms out, but we figured our way through it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, also, we had good banking relationships by then. So, you know, our banks were good to us. Not great, but good to us, you know. Banks only give you money when you don't need it usually. They're, so. they're, they're never great, are they? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And Marion and I had done a really good job saving. Um, so there was a couple of years, you know, a couple of years after counting when we were growing Tebow, where we were putting money in to keep it alive. Hmm. So you had to, to make up the short. Had to, yeah. 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 We're taking a quick break to remind designers about bensolmoney.com's exclusive trade program. With generous designer pricing, bensolmoney.com has an incredible selection of in-stock and ready-to-ship luxury furniture, rugs, decor, and original art, including oversized offerings. A custom design atelier allows you to create the perfect piece for your next project. Sign up today for a trade account at bensolmoney.com. And now, back to the show. I'm curious about e-commerce and how that business has grown for you. I'm curious about how you're thinking about this pricing transparency issue that is always being discussed in our industry and whether whether these showrooms should be actually showing pricing. We, we spoke to Thomas Lavin recently. He actually felt, let's go ahead and put the net pricing out there. Designers need to know what the price is so they can compare and uh, understand. Where, where, what do you think? Well... I was the first one in the design center, and this was 17 years ago, where I stopped doing retail. I just said, we have no part of that. You know, your retail is different than somebody else's retail. Some designers back then were marking it up 40%. Some were marking it up 50%. Some were marking it up 20%. It was all over the place. So why should I artificially put a number on there that makes the stuff look so expensive that you can't sell it? So I went, like with the fabrics, to a 510 code, even with the furniture. You know, the coding is to protect the designer um, so that people don't go around them all the time. Now, I will tell you 
that it's a lot. It's not as important as it once was. Right. A lot of designers now are working with full transparency. They show the client the bill. They tell the client what it is. They just tell them up front what their markup's going to be and what their design fee is going to be. And then everything else is right up front. And I think that's the way it should be done. And is it your sense that that is becoming more and more the norm in the Boston and the New England market? 100%. As the old guard has retired, then uh, less and less as that has happened. All the young ones coming in, totally about transparency. So it's really not as big as an issue as it once was. As far as e-commerce goes, yeah, Mary Louie, who you've talked to, yes. uh, is our a social media guru. Right. We hired her to work for us. She used to work for Jamestown. Oh. And so we hired her to do ours. So she does all of our social media, but we don't get business from it. It's all about promoting the lines hmm. and letting our companies know that we're out there on every format talking about them and their product. So it just helps us keep our lines staying at home with us. So that's the purpose that social media is is serving, is is promoting and, and making yes. people aware. But are more and more designers wanting from you the ability to order online from the Martin Group? Do they want to be able to see fabric inventories? Do they want to be able to place orders at night while they're working from home or all of that? I mean, is that a pressure? I think there is probably a third of them that would like that. The problem is when you're a multi-line showroom, every company you represent has a different system mm -hmm. and a different way they do it. So you might be able to go and look at Tebow's site and do that, but you can't go and look at Zoffany's site and do that. Or, you know, right. so it's different. One of the biggest problems that we get the most complaints about is opening up with companies. Our designers don't understand why they can't fill out an application for the Martin Group, and that covers them for all the companies, but the companies all have different rules and regulations. So they all demand that you do an opening thing just for their company. So it gets tedious. So what we do is we just tell them, tell us what companies you want, give us your information, we'll do all the work for you. Oh, really? So you sort of broker all of the yes. accounts for them. That That's interesting because I am struck, Gary, as I am sure you are as well, that it is still so complicated with some of these companies to yes. open an account. Really? Really? Yeah. Does it need to be that complicated uh, these days? I mean... Dennis, I don't know if you remember <laughs> how brutal it was to get into Brunswick and Fee oh. in, in the old days. You know, it was like you, you had to be royalty to get in there. <laughs> Well, that was the thing. They wanted bank references oh, yeah. and there had to be several people had to represent you who could vouch for your character. Yeah, once Kravit bought them, you know, it, it became normal. But boy, it wasn't normal then. No. And they ruled the roost. I mean, they when I got in the industry, Brunswick owned Boston, absolutely owned it. And it was a perfect look for Boston, too. Well, and that's such a great point. That speaks to the perception that people had about the Boston market for so many years. Brunswick was synonymous with what people thought design in, in Boston looked like, right? It was. But then, you know, Boston started to gentrify and change. And the students stopped leaving after they got their education because there were so many big companies moving in. And all, all of a sudden, what Boston was 
isn't anymore. It's now young and fresh and vibrant and, and all these big companies, these kids are making huge amount of money and, and, you know, they don't want stodgy and they don't want, you know, old fashioned and they hate antiques and, you know, it's a different world. I eat Tebow. It's perfect for them. <laughs> this is Tebow's opportunity. Yeah. Well, so looking back, I mean, just to, just to wrap up Brunchwig for a minute, what in your mind really happened to that once sort of legendary company and brand? What really went wrong there? You know, I think part of it was the treatment. You know, the younger designers that got turned away one after the other, that they couldn't get accounts. I have designers to this day when I'm in the showroom tell me, you were the only one that would open me in the beginning, Gary, and I never forgot it, you know? So I think that was part of it. I also think that the ownership got old mm. and uh, they turned it over to one of their sons and he wasn't them. And the third thing is they got into furniture and they took a lot of space in design centers, added space for their furniture. And by then, their, their great deals that they had gotten with all these design centers were over. And I think the, all of a sudden, they're paying full rent. And now they have all this additional space for furniture. I just think the costs exploded on them. And they didn't save enough money for when that changed. Yeah. And the same thing somewhat happened with your former employer, Scala Madre. Again, once a lion of the industry, and then it sort of ran into troubles. What happened there in, in your mind? You know, Ward left the company. Ward Bitter, yeah. Yeah, Bitter. to go do his own thing. Hmm. And um, I think it was a big loss. You know, I told you earlier that he was a terrific boss, and he had a sparkling mind. And I, I thought he was an amazing asset to that company. But, you know, all the brothers and sisters were in there and, and the, the mother and father and family squabbles. And I, I think that's what hurt them. I also think when they went into the uh, gray goods business, that was the wrong direction. And tell us what you mean by gray goods for people. Well, they would make huge runs of fabrics that were not used for our industry. And right. um, they thought it would give them a great base. And I don't think they weren't the right people to do it. Yeah. They could have owned the trimming business. At the time when I was with them, we all told them, keep going headlong into trimming because we made our own right there in Long Island City. And they kept dabbling with it, but they didn't go crazy with it. And i.e. Samuel and Sons, which I am fortunate enough to have. Well, and lucky you, because that, yeah. that is that is one of the great companies and great brands of our industry and such such savvy business people. The other Cohen brothers in our industry, yeah. the, the nicer Cohens, as I like to refer to them. They are uh, brilliant business people. Yeah. Yeah, they're a wonderful family, and they've created a, a huge business that, to me, there's why even bother competing with them? You can't. You know, they own the trimming business in the design trade now. And I had Hulais years ago. And uh, when they came to me, Sam and Sons wanted me to take it over. I said, you know what? Trimming's too much trouble. Uh, because, you know, you're selling, it's some of it's 2 $3 a yard, and you got to sell a ton of it. Well, with Sam and Sons, uh, that did not turn out to be the case. We do sell a lot of small amounts of it, but it all adds up. 
the one thing I would say to you, Dennis, about the whole industry is you can be as good of a showroom as there is, as far as service and caring about people and doing all the right things. But if the product you represent isn't any good, it doesn't matter. The product drives the industry. We don't force people or try to force people to buy product. They find it, they like it, it works in their job, and that's how it's sold. So we're not actively selling, we're actively promoting is what I would say. You know, we show it to the best of our abilities, but these companies we just got done talking about, Tebow and um, Sam and Sons, they have people developing their product that are geniuses, and they get it right 80% of the time, where a lot of other people get it right 25% of the time. And the ones that get it right 80% of the time, they're doing fabulous. Well, so in, in all the years that, that you've been doing this, Gary, were there product lines that you wanted to get into yourself? Did you see opportunities in the marketplace or holes in your own lineup? A lot of the showrooms have done their own product lines. Mm. And uh, quite truthfully, I never had the cash flow to do it. Is that what held you back, the, the cash flow rather than cash the flow? Design? And also okay. the expertise. You know, I, mm. I said to you that I was... um. Uh, a round peg in a square hole or whatever it was. (laughs) You know, like David, David Webster had taste that never quit. And he had a flair and he was was really, he had a great design eye. You know, I was an entrepreneur. I was a businessman. I was good at blocking and tackling is what I call it. Um, But I was never great at making pretty uh, and making things look beautiful. And his showroom was dazzling. Josh, Studio 534, his showroom is really beautiful. Ours is nice. Uh, we do a, a good job with it. Ours is a nice showroom. Yeah. Uh, but I never thought it was the most beautiful. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm excited about this new one is because I now hired a designer to help me with it, where the last bunch I did myself. And this this one should be really quite nice. So I'm excited about it. All my life doing this, I watched, but I always felt like I was on the other side of the glass. I always felt, wow, these people really live great. And, you know, I hope someday I can. Well, we just bought this house down in South Carolina on the golf course in uh, Hilton Head. And I hired a Boston designer, Robert Rubel, to do my house. The first time in my life I've been able to afford to do what my clients have done all these years. And so I'm having my house decorated in Hilton Head, and I'm really excited about it. Well, and 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 has the whole process begun? Have you started working with the designer? Oh, yeah. We've been doing it for close to a year now, I guess. Okay. And and, and isn't it an incredible experience working, working with a designer? And, yeah. And, and having... you know, him and I have become such close friends through it. I mean, we were always good buds, uh, business acquaintances. But now we've become really close friends through the whole thing. And I can see how that happens. You know, you work so closely with them and they're bringing you such beautiful ideas and it's great. Well, how great that after all of these years in the industry, you get to experience it your, yourself and, and working with a great designer and and understanding even better. And I mean, we should point out for listeners, you mentioned 39 years, you are the longest standing player 
in that Boston Design Center, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm the only one left. <laughs> I uh, I remember uh, in the old days when I was younger and Franny Davison, the Davison group was there. Yeah. And she had, she had been there forever. By the way, she was always a saint. She was a wonderful help. Anytime I ever was confused or needed an answer, I would go down and Franny was always willing to give you um, a helping hand. I hope that I've been that to some of the younger designers I've tried uh, really hard to uh, help Josh. And now Josh helps me too. Um, <laughs> it's a great relationship. But, um, you know, you try to ha- hand some of your expertise, you know, just that you learn through osmosis of all those years. Something's got to sink in, you know. Well, and and as you think about, we've touched on various subjects around where this where this industry might go and 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 your market might go i mean as you as you think about sort of stepping away more do you feel as though there will always be the need for these multi-line showrooms to to be these incubators as you talked about to bring up these young young artists and artisans and so there we'll we'll figure it out somehow the economics of it this business will never go completely e-commerce You've got to touch it. You got to feel it. You got to see it in the right light. There's always going to be a need for showrooms, I believe, and uh, and I think there'll always be a need for some independence. I just don't think it'll be the volume of independence that it used to be. Yeah. So, um, I you know, Dennis, it's been a great. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. It's a, it's a, it's an emotional subject. It's been a great way to make a living. Yes. I'm very proud. Well, and and what a wonderful legacy that you are are leaving for for the industry. And and as you said earlier, there's so many people that you've helped and and so many people that you've that you've worked with. So many that helped me. That's the kind of industry it is, you know. People care and yeah. people want you to succeed. You know, so it it was a great way great way to make a living. Well, I'm so glad that it's all worked out uh, as well as it has for you, Gary. Very, very well deserved. Thank you. I wish we would have got to work together back then. <laughs> yes, I do too. But I, I'm so glad that at least we, we got to have a friendship, uh, if, yep. not a, if not a working relationship. Isn't that amazing? We made a friendship from you sitting at my desk one day uh, and talking to me about doing a fabric line. And uh from that point on, you know, we've kind of been business friends throughout. Yeah. I've watched your career. You've watched my career. Well, and as you were saying, that's the remarkable thing about this industry, the relationships and the, the people that you meet along the way. And uh, I believe, as you said earlier, we, we need these showrooms. We particularly need the independence uh, for all that they bring. And I, and I just hope that, whether it is ultimately leaving some of these design centers or or finding some other way to to make the economics of it work so that it can continue. The good showrooms will always find a way. (laughs) Well, on that hopeful note, thank you again, Gary. Such an absolute pleasure. Great, Dennis. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. 
If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.